This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Good. If people can take their seats, that would be good. Thank you. Um, comparability. Um, is it in- introspective and inward-looking in relationship to how a particular qualification is located against others? Or does it have implications for the qualification system as a whole and for society? I think it's the latter, and it's become an extremely hot topic. Why? Because many people have very naive assumptions about it and how easy it is to actually obtain it. My assumption has always been that the most critical aspect of a qualification is the extent to which it does what it says it is set out to do, the extent to which it predicts later, the extent to which it's usable and useful in progression. But intersubject comparability is still implied in or dominates a lot of the thinking around our education system. And so it's into that kind of very, very horrible mass of contradictory things and massive tensions that your presentation sits, Paul. Um, Interesting to know where you're going to take us. Thanks, Tim. Um, Okay. It was during the first few months of 1995 that I spent a lot of time trying to work out what was meant by cross-syllabus correlations. And I was, I was working at the AEB at the time and I was writing a primer on the use of statistics in examinations processing. And I just kind of got a bit hung up on what it all meant. But it just so happened that my confusion, it was very germane to the publication of some research that had just been published by SCAR, the School's Curriculum Assessment Authority, um, on differences in difficulty across subjects at A-level. And that research had been published by uh, Carol Fitzgibbon and Luke Vincent uh, from the CHEM Centre. Uh, they were in Newcastle upon time at that point in time, rather than Durham. Uh, and it was based upon data that was available to them from the ALICE Results Analysis Service. Um, as far as they were concerned, the evidence clearly showed that uh, maths and science subjects were difficult and so too were language subjects. Um, But the exam boards weren't quite so sure, and I have to admit that I bought into that scepticism. That was my contribution to the debate. Uh, My contribution was to use data from the 1995 GCC examinations in English and maths to effectively develop a technical critique of Fitzgibbon and uh, Vincent, and I called it this, Measuring Comparability of Standards Between Subjects why our statistical techniques do not make the grade. I guess over the past 15 years, I've been trying to work out what I actually meant by that paper. And I think I finally concluded that I was making as much sense as anyone was making at the time, but that actually none of us were making very much sense. Um, So this presentation really is an attempt to say what I might have said 15 years ago if I'd really understood what I was trying to say. Where I think I went wrong 15 years ago, it was in assuming that there could only really be one legitimate definition of comparability, and that's the the North American uh, definition, the tradition of equating, if you like, the conventional definition of equating. So it's fair to say that intersubject comparability makes no sense at all from within that traditional conception. So I think my idea at the time, and I think many of the warning body researchers' idea at the time, is we should just kind of give up on the idea. Now what I think is that there are actually lots of different definitions of comparability, 
each of which might potentially be legitimate on its own terms and in its own context. So this, the point of this presentation really is to explore different kinds of definitions of comparability and to see if there are any that are fit for the purpose of intersubject comparability. Okay. This is my attempt to summarise what I'm going to say today. Um, starts off by saying, well, two assertions really. The first being that the award of pass rates in different subjects presumably means that students in certain subjects are somehow better or worse than students in other subjects. Okay, so that's my first assumption. If not, then why on earth do we award different pass rates in the different subjects? Okay, that's my basic reasoning. Um, second, if that's true, then we ought to be able to explain in what way students in one subject are better than students in the other. And again, if we can't explain that, then why on earth are we awarding different pass rates in the different subjects? So the question then becomes, can we actually explain those differences? Um, the third point, uh, my third point is that conventional view of comparability renders intersubject comparability meaningless. Yeah, so the conventional definition of comparability doesn't help us to make sense of intersubject comparability. Then fourth, um, the alternative view, the view that the exam boards have implicitly relied upon for decades, uh, isn't actually viable for UK exams after all, which I think is quite an important conclusion. Let's see what you think about it. It's the definition that the awarding bodies have relied upon over the decades to effectively defect, deflect criticism. Okay, so my final conclusion then is that to help us provide a genuine explanation, we need to explore different ways of thinking about comparability. And I'm not going to conclude with the correct definition. Um, that's certainly up for debate. But the point really of the discussion is to say that we do need to be having this debate on the correct definition to use. Okay, I'll start really with a, a disclaimer. Only fair. Our presentation doesn't represent the view of Cambridge Assessment, OCR, ESL, CIE. Um, it develops new ideas. Um, potentially calling it science in the making, if you like, just saying that um, I haven't thought through the implications of these views in um, as much detail as I will have done in 10 years' time, so it's the beginning of a debate, it's not the end. Um, I'll leave it at that. This is, this is the very idea of intersubject comparability. Um, summed up neatly in a headline that accompanied a letter to the Times Educational Supplement uh, back in 1976. Uh, it said this, your chemistry equals my French. So what on earth could that possibly mean? You know, your grade B in chemistry equals my grade B in French. Your skills in chemistry somehow equal to my skills in French. It's kind of a bizarre idea really, isn't it? And Robert Wood uh, who was the author of the letter to the Times, he certainly thought, thought, thought so. Um, at that time, which was uh, 1976, as I say, uh, Robert Wood was head of ULUISEC, uh, I think that's how you pronounce the acronym, um, which was the London Examining Board of, of the time, which is now at Excel. Um, and in his letter to the, to the TS, he wrote this, and I'm quoting this, he said, just the thought of French and chemistry examiners sitting at the same table to discuss standards is enough to dispose of this lunatic idea. Okay, a lunatic idea, what do you make of that? Um, this is basically a senior examining board official describing the very idea of intersubject comparability as a lunatic idea. 
It's hard to know quite what to make of it, but if nothing else, it just goes to show that the passions, if you like, that are evoked by this debate, and also perhaps the extreme positions that people are, are willing to take on it. OK, I'm going to start with some ostensibly straightforward questions. First, does the Code of Practice require awarding bodies to take steps to ensure comparability of standards between subjects? Second, does the Secretary of State assume that awarding bodies take steps to ensure comparability of standards across subjects? And then thirdly, do the awarding bodies claim that standards are comparable between subjects? This is my answer to the first question. Um, Code of Practice 2010. I think that the answer to the first question is probably no. Okay. Um, the Code of Practice, it, it definitely makes, as you said, Helen, it makes no explicit uh, requirement upon awarding bodies to ensure comparability of standards between subjects. But that's not to say that it doesn't appear to make that recommendation sometimes, and it probably um, comes closest to appearing to make that uh, recommendation here, paragraph 1.1. Um, and I'm picking out in particular the phrase across different specifications, which is kind of the language you were using there, Stuart, I think. Um, that definitely does mean across uh, different specifications within a subject area. And it possibly also means uh, across specifications within a cognate subject group, maybe, like modern foreign language, perhaps. But it doesn't necessarily, I think, mean across all subject areas. Uh, I should say that there have been times when it has explicitly said um, across subjects, um, when I pointed one example of that out to um, Dennis Opros, who gave a presentation here a couple of weeks ago, he said, oh, how'd that get in? So we took it out, <laughs> took it out the year after. Um, currently, there's no explicit mention, and we'll leave it at that. Secretary of State, yeah, I, I think you're right there. <laughs> I think the Secretary of State does assume um, that we take standards, that state steps to ensure comparability across subject areas. And that's a quotation that I took from a letter to Kathleen Tattersall. Uh, I think it was a letter accepting her resignation, actually. Um, the letter wasn't actually about intersubject comparability, but it basically got a name check anyway. So I think the Secretary of State assumes that we take steps. What about the awarding bodies? Do the awarding bodies claim? Paul, just, just on that last slide as well, though, I mean, in the introduction, I was just making the point that many aspects of the administration of the education training system actually presuppose it as well. So it's not just the Secretary of State. You're presupposing my next four slides. I'm fact. sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the awarding bodies. Um, I think the answer to the third question is probably yes. Um, but mainly by implication and rarely by explicit declaration. That's a fair way of putting it. Um, and up on the slide, I've put a quotation from Mike Creswell, who's the former Director General of AEB. Um, he says there, nonetheless, the examining boards and groups have continued to claim, if only by implication, that the same grade represents the same standard of attainment in any subject, and in general, selectors have continued to behave accordingly. Uh, and what I think is particularly interesting is that the sentence that preceded that statement read, and I'm quoting again here, he said, most authors have agreed that the continuing utility of the public examination system depends upon the possibility of making sufficiently good approximations to valid comparisons between attainments in differing domains. OK, 
Okay. Pragmatic case can be made for this point of view when the issue is comparability between different examinations in the same subject, but it leaves as meaningless the notion of comparability across different subjects. Okay. Meaningless. So Mike was basically saying, I think, that the examining boards tend to imply that standards are comparable across subject areas, um, but without necessarily declaring this and without also having any clear rational basis for making that kind of claim anyway. As you said, Tim, it would be a little bit awkward for the examining board to come out and explicitly say there's no intersubject comparability um, because of all the uses that presume it. And as I said, I've got four slides here that illustrate how if there, weren't, if there wasn't intersubject comparability, then potentially there'd be a lot of bad decision-making happening out in the real world. Uh, this first slide um, just illustrates the kind of bad decisions that university selectors might make. Um, the example I've got at the top is that to be accepted to study law for their 2010 intake, uh, you'd have needed to achieve a minimum of three A-levels or their equivalent um, and have a tariff score corresponding to the AAB, um, ABB grade range. And the point here is that the Law Admis- uh, Admissions Office didn't have any requirement to study any particular combination of subjects. So they treated all subjects as equal and as interchangeable, effectively. Similar thing then with Portsmouth. Um, If you wanted to study psychology at Portsmouth in 2010, you'd have needed a minimum of two A-levels, or their equivalent, and 320 UCAS points. Uh, Fed say that here the, the Psychology Admissions Office did specify that you had to have at least one science subject at grade B, but that could be in any science subject from chemistry to geography, psychology, statistics. And the point here, of course, is that if it was easier to get a grade B in psychology than in chemistry, then the admissions process would um, arguably have been unfair and bad selection decisions would have been made. That's just one example. Um, Senior management teams might make bad decisions when they're judging teachers judging teaching quality across subject departments. I won't dwell on the quotations here. Um, Students might make bad decisions when they're judging their own potential in subject areas. Parents might make bad decisions when judging schools. And this slide relates to the accusation um, that schools are entering pupils for easy subjects, basically, to elevate their league table positions artificially. So you can see how this, this kind of extends beyond the argument that some GCSEs are easier than others to the idea that some GCSE equivalents are easier than others. Uh, and this, this slide is basically just for entertainment value, really. It's kind of the latest fad in newspaper headlines from uh, Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph, that kind of thing. Um, GCSE in Facebook, GCSE in getting condoms without your parents knowing. Uh, it's entertainment. Uh, Not sure how much you can read into it. All I'm really emphasising with the past few slides um, is that the way in which we allocate allocate grades across subject areas is important. It has important consequences, not just for individuals, but for, well, ultimately, the structure of society itself. So intersubject comparability isn't a trivial kind of arcane academic ivory tower pursuit, if you like. It's something that really matters. This, I think, is what the intersubject comparability debate is all about, uh, and it's differences in pass rates between subject areas. 
And actually, this graph doesn't uh, represent pass rates per se. It shows a cumulative percentage of students at grade C or above at A-level from 2009, um, aggregated across the five unitary awarding bodies um, in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. But it's basically the same principle, pass rates. So I've highlighted here with the red bars, just to illustrate the, the challenge, over 90% of students of Irish, on the one hand, awarded grade C or above. But in the middle, you see that only 80% of students of English awarded grade C or above. Yeah, at this end again, you've got something like 90% of further math students being awarded grade C or above. Whereas right at the other end, you've got only around 60% of computing students getting grade C or above. And my question is basically, what's that all about? You know, how can we explain those differences? Yeah. Exactly how were the further maths candidates better than the computing studies candidates? You know, in exactly what way were the students of Irish better than the students of English? Or any of the other differences across the subjects? And I'm, I'm kind of assuming here, of course, that we should be able to give an explanation for those questions. Which might in itself be the crux of the matter. So on this slide, I've got the question, do awarded bodies have a duty to be able to explain why students in one subject deserve higher grades than students in another? Maybe they don't. There's certainly nothing in the code of practice to say so, definitively. <coughs> Perhaps we've got a moral obligation. If we do have a moral obligation, then I think the explanation probably has to go something like this. Students in this subject were different from students in that subject. Uh, expanding that students in the subjects were somehow better than students in that subject. And what we mean by better is blah, blah, blah. And that, of course, is the million-dollar question. What do we mean by better in this context? And I'm going to come back to that formulation of the question in a little bit. Um, but I'm just going to change tack slightly um, and ask exactly the same question, but just from a different perspective. So I'm not going to talk about what the differences between subjects mean. I'm going to talk about um, what it might mean for standards to be the same. Okay, so what might it mean for standards in one subject to be comparable with standards in another? It's, it's the technical formulation of the question. It's, about, it's not about accounting for differences in pass rates. It's just about accounting for what we mean by applying the same standard. So how do you answer a question like that? Well, how I decided to try and answer a question like that was by uh, consulting the literature. Seems like a sensible thing to do. Specifically, what I decided to do was look at the entire corpus of research on intersubject comparability um, from the first intersubject comparability monitoring report onwards, basically. I was kind of reasoning that if anyone knew what we meant by intersubject comparability, then it would be those who've actually studied it. Um, so the question is, who studied it and what did they say? Well, I decided to select for review um, any report on intersubject comparability uh, that met these criteria. So it had to present a body of original data on intersubject comparability, um, had to involve the post-hoc monitoring of whether or not comparability had been achieved. Um, I only looked at um, public examinations offered by English examining boards. You can find some reports on uh, Wales and Scotland and a number of other countries around the world, but I decided to focus just on the English context. 
Um, and I decided also to include reports that were published and circulated, uh, sorry, that were not published and circulated in addition to those that were published and circulated. So I, I looked in the grey literature as well as the published literature. Um, which is a good job because there are only actually six reports I could find that were published. Um, Sixteen um, appeared as official publications um, from the agency that sponsored the research, like Schools Council, Examining Boards and SCAR. So they were, they were published in a sense, but not published in a kind of academic peer-reviewed sense. Um, and 14 of my corpus were unpublished, but had been circulated for discussion within the examining community, as is our way. Um, research fell into four phases, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go quickly through each of those four phases and just explain the differences between them. Uh, just to explain what the uh, abbreviations mean on the slide, um, so you see there's nine reports here in uh, phase one. Status is the status of the report, so OP means it's an official publication. Um, so the first one was actually an official publication from the Schools Council who sponsored the NFER to do um, the research. Uh, affiliation is the organisation that did the research, so NFER, JMB, Joint Matriculation Board, uh, Oxford University. Anyone know YREB? Helen will know YREB. Yorkshire Regional Town Board, is it? I think it's that, yeah. Uh, anyone not know what CSE means? There will at some point be someone. Um, oh, obviously, O-level. OK, I think it's kind of ironic that the very first reports to satisfy my criteria from the previous slide um, weren't actually designed to investigate into subject comparability at all. Um, there were four reports, first four on the slide, um, sponsored by the Schools Council and undertaken by the NFER into standards in the CSE, Certificate of Secondary Education, uh, at that time, the, the CSE had just been introduced and it was being offered by nine examining boards at the time, nine CSE boards. Um, and the Schools Council wanted to be reassured that standards were comparable between those nine CSE boards, uh, within each of those CSE boards from one year to the next, and also between CSE grades um, one and four and O-level grades C and F. Okay. So that was their primary interest. And it just so happened that in presenting evidence on all of those facets of comparability, um, they also generated a wealth of data on intersubject comparability. And what did they do with all that information? Absolutely nothing, which is very interesting. Um, only one of the reports even raised the topic for discussion before dismissing it as less of an immediate problem. Okay, so it wasn't actually until the mid-'70s uh, that the same NFER researchers who were involved in the original research returned to their data and reanalyzed it in terms of intersubject comparability. And I'm, I'm now looking at the Natal et al. And, and the Wilmot. Um, and that's when the debate really took off. Because unlike the JMB researchers, Forrest and, Forrest and Smith, who had done some earlier research on intersubject comparability but hadn't really found anything to be fussed about, um, Nuttall and his colleagues um, did find issues they found issues um, with both the CSC and the O-level. And that kind of really set the cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, just an aside on methodology, uh, just a quick one. Um, during phase one, there have been two main methods used 
to explore into subject comparability. That's the reference test technique and the subject pairs analysis. And I can explain the logic underlying both of those by using the subject pairs analysis. It's probably the easiest to explain it. And it basically goes like this on the slide. You imagine a pair of subjects like maths and English GCC. You select only those students who took both of those examinations. You work out the average grade in maths and the average grade in English. And since it's the same students taking both of the examinations... You wouldn't expect them to be better in one subject than the other, not with a large kind of representative sample. So if the average grades do differ, um, that means that the awarding process must have been at fault. Okay? So if exactly the same students got higher grades in English than they got in maths, then the maths exam must have been too easy. Yeah? Follow that logic? <laughs> Bit non-responsive there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it depends on this assumption, really, this assumption in green. That's the bottom line. And it, it's that assumption that the awarded bodies took exception to, and that's what led to f- the phase two of the research. Um, there's a few, few new uh, abbreviations there. URR means unrestricted research report. So that's a research report that was written by an awarding body researcher and just kind of generally circulated to chums in the examining world world for discussion. Um, JP means journal publication. Um, TDRU. Was anyone here in the TDRU? TDRU was the Test Development Research Unit, which goes back a fair few uh, years. It's the Oxford and Cambridge exam boards came together um, within this research unit. Alf Massey possibly the most recent person to have been in it? Maybe. Okay, so, so basically, during phase two, the exam boards spent a lot of time uh, criticising the assumption that I put on the previous side in green. Uh, it's a very technical critique, and I don't need to go into the details of it, but it basically followed the following kind of line of logic, if you like. A logic that goes like this. Just because it's the same students who took both examinations... Um, that doesn't mean that they necessarily ought to end up with the same grades. Okay? Because, for instance, their English teachers might, on average, have been better than their maths teachers. Yeah? Or they might have put more effort into English than they put into studying maths as a group. They might have put more time into studying English than into studying maths. And you can kind of think of your own counter-explanations, if you like. The point here is that we can't know for sure whether English teachers, on average, were better than the maths teachers, but the fact that they might have been gives us sufficient reason to doubt the validity of the results at face value. So this was the essence of the warning body critique during phase two. It wasn't until phase three that people really began, phase three, um, the sort of mid-80s onwards, that people really got into the criterion referencing notion and then dismissed it quite quickly. Um, so I guess that certainly at the beginning it would have been more of a norm reference. But it's hard to draw that distinction in any watertight fashion. I, I won't hesitate to say that. Um, so essentially, by, by the end of the phase two, the warning bodies have done all this research, a lot of criticism of the early research by NFER, and basically by the end of this period they thought that they'd won the debate hands down. 
and demolish the NFER's argument. They might have won the battle, but they hadn't won the war, clearly, because another army of researchers came along, as I mentioned at the outset, this time Fitz, Carol Fitzgibbon and Luke Vincent from the Chem Centre. Um, I think there's one new uh, abbreviation, RRR. This is a feature of this phase, actually, interesting, Restricted Research Report. Um, and there were two research reports here, from Wilmot and the Alton and Pearson one, um, that were produced but that weren't circulated um, without any caveats that they shouldn't be circulated any further than the people within the examining board world. And that was a consequence, really, of phase two, when the exam boards had basically concluded that the kind of analysis they were using, Wilmot and Alton and Pearson, just weren't dependable. So that's really the reason for the restriction of the research reports at this phase. Um, so basically what you see then in phase three is that the cycle's repeated. The NFER versus the exam board cycle is repeated with the Chem Centre versus the exam board. So the Chem Centre used their reference test results to conclude that maths and science subjects uh, were difficult and so too were the languages. Uh, and the examining boards, including myself, I have to admit, um, developed cunning technical counter-challenges to rubbish the Chem Centre's claims. So again, by the end of phase three, the exam boards felt that they, again, won the war, um, hands down. They still hadn't actually persuaded the Chem Centre, uh, and they hadn't persuaded the maths and science community, the modern foreign language community, economics community. Um, the debate hadn't been resolved, it just kind of petered out. So we're on to phase four now. A decade later, uh, and the Chem Centre, again, uh, reawaken the debate. Uh, this time it was based in Durham and Rob Coe was championing it. Um, doing so with the support of the subject communities. So in 2006, uh, the Association of Language Learning latched onto the Chem Centre data uh, and the report, Report 31, Myers, Helen Myers, I believe, um, presented some of Rob Coe's data along with some other data um, to argue that languages were high, harder. Uh, science community, SCORE, uh, sponsored their own report, which was published in 2008. That's Coatel 2008. But I think it's interesting that the debate in phase four took a slightly different turn from the debate in previous years. Because instead of it being an all-and-out war between the Chem Centre and the examining boards, it kind of turned into more of a, a falling out between friends, if you like. And there was a reason for that. Because what I think is interesting... Um, about phase four from Ben Jones's work onwards was the explicit recognition of different, although potentially legitimate, definitions of comparability. Which is useful because that now meant that both sides could be right. Yeah? So the, the, the Chem Centre could be right in saying that the data indicated anomalies in grading standards across subjects, and the exam boards and the regulator could be right in saying that it didn't. Yeah? And that's because the Chem Centre was able to latch onto one definition of comparability, and the exam boards and the regulator um, latched onto another. And there's actually a good explicit um, discussion of that on the Ofqual website, where um, Ofqual in 2008 did quite explicitly say, we're taking a different definition of comparability from you guys. But the question then becomes, of course, whose definition is it anyway? You know, who, who ought to be in a position to decide what definition to apply. And we simply haven't got an answer to that question yet. 
which is the anomaly at the end of uh, phase four. Uh, right now, though, I think I need to show you what different definitions of comparability might actually look like. So that's what I'm going to do with the rest of the presentation. Um, I'm going to show you seven different definitions of comparability, first five of which were um, apparent from the corpus of research that I was looking at, and the last two um, weren't, but are interesting all the same. And I, I kind of have to start with an apology for my arcane language here, um, phenomenal definition. It's not the most straightforward of terms to use, but it's, it's technically quite useful, I think, and hopefully I'll be able to give you a sense of what it actually is meant to convey. So I'm starting here with what is actually the conventional definition of comparability. It's the one definition of comparability that I'm going to give you that definitely doesn't work for intersubject comparability, and none of the intersubject comparability researchers appeal to it, I'm glad to say. Okay, so as I said, it's the conventional definition that works just as... It works well just as long as you're only talking about two versions of the same examination. Okay? And that might be, as the slide suggests... Um, within boards from one year to the next in the same subject, in the same specification even. Or at a stretch, it might be across awarding bodies within a year uh, for their parallel syllabuses. So I've got here Mass A, AQA versus Mass A, OCR. So it's the same subject, basically. So notionally, you can just about stretch the conventional, traditional definition to cover it or even alternative specifications within an examining board. Uh, and I've called it the full construct phenomenal definition. And the point here is that to be awarded the same grade, students need to be able to demonstrate the same observable phenomena of attainment. That's why I've called it phenomenal definition, observable phenomena of attainment. And basically what I mean by that is they need to be able to demonstrate the same kind of knowledge, skill and understanding, where English is one kind and maths is another kind. Okay, so this, this, this is why I'm saying that the definition obviously doesn't work for intersubject comparability, where you're talking about different kinds of knowledge, skill, and understanding. So it's not mass A against mass B. It's uh, mass against chemistry or art or history. So as I said, this is a conventional definition of comparability. Um, simply can't be applied across subject areas. And that's why some comparability commentators, like Robert Wood thought that comparability across subject areas was a lunatic idea because he latched onto the conventional definition and said within the scope of the conventional definition there can be no sense made of intersubject comparability. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that this definition makes no sense um, when you're looking at extreme comparisons like chemistry versus art, but maybe you can kind of approximate it for similar subjects. And that's going to take me on to my second definition. It's my first potential contender as a legitimate definition of intersubject comparability. I'm calling this the, the part construct phenomenal definition. Um, again, uh, to be awarded the same grade, students need to be able to demonstrate the same observable phenomena of attainment. So it's still a phenomenal definition. But this time, the attainment being compared is only part of the attainment examined in both of the examinations. Okay? And I'm kind of going to illustrate that here um, with the example of French and German. 
And I'm going to suggest to you that you, you might be able to understand similarity in terms of them both developing a similar level of general linguistic proficiency, maybe. Okay. And if it were true that both of those subjects develop some kind of general linguistic proficiency, then that part of the construct of each of them could be the basis for linking standards across those similar subjects. Okay, so obviously French is quite different from German, but if students can do similar things in those different subjects, then that might give you the basis for being able to say there's some kind of comparability of standards across them. Does that vaguely make sense? Good. Okay, so from two, two of the reports from my corpus of 35, this does seem to have been the definition that they used. Only two of them, interestingly. The first was JMB from 1982, and the second was QCA in 2008. This is the QCA um, usage. Okay, so it's a recent study from the regulator, uh, and it said subject experts with a background in assessment were employed as reviewers to analyse assessment materials and candidate work across two or more cognate subjects to draw comparisons and highlight differences in demand. So what I'm saying here is these subject subject experts were comparing the phenomena of attainment, so they were comparing actual examination performances to look for similarities. Uh, So I think that means that uh, the QCA was employing a phenomenal definition of comparability. I kind of also think that the comparisons that they were drawing were probably a little bit too extreme for this definition because they were drawing comparisons across subjects as disparate as... um, English literature, history, media studies, um, geography and history. I think my question would then be, um, are the skills that students acquire in history similar enough to the skills that they acquire in geography to be able to perform this kind of comparison, even under this definition? I'm not sure. But I'd say, whether or not it's actually possible for um, subject experts to look for similarities across subjects as disparate as this... I think this is what the QCA was asking them to do, and therefore I think this is the definition of comparability that the QCA was working with at the time. Comparability was defined in terms of whatever it was about those two subjects that was meant to be common. Okay, I'm going on to the JMB research, Forrest and Vickerman, 82. Again, I think they were trying to operationalise something like um, a part construct phenomenal definition but perhaps slightly more conservatively. Uh, They said, each different subject is unique and has different criteria from other subjects, by which I think they mean criteria for the award of grades, like knowledge, skill and understanding. Alternatives within a particular subject must be extremely similar in terms of criteria, and it's in making comparisons between alternatives that the subject pairs technique is an especially powerful and apposite tool. In addition, it can prove very useful technique for comparing allied subjects. And that's kind of the key sentence, really. In addition, it can be used for allied subjects. So I think that this quotation is basically saying that the conventional definition, the phenomenal definition, works well across different specifications within a subject area, relying upon similarity of examination performances as evidence. And you can just about get it to stretch for allied or cognate subject areas like French and German, um, but probably not across radically different domains. And I I think this is something like approximating the conventional definition, which is the idea 
that Mike Creswell was talking about earlier. So you can think of the part construct phenomenal definition as an approximation of the full construct phenomenal definition, if you like. And if it works here, it only works because Forrest and Vickerman were only looking across comparisons for similar allied cognate subject areas. These guys and the QCA were actually out on a limb in adopting this definition, though, um, because almost all of the examining board researchers uh, that I studied uh, seemed to be applying a very different definition. That's the definition I'm coming to now, which is what I call the all-causes-causal definition. So we've moved on from phenomenal definitions to now causal definitions. And I hope I can explain the key difference here. I think the best expression of the assumptions that follow from a causal definition uh, are found in the very first intersubject monitoring report, so that's from 1966, um, that report said the evidence of the reference test or any test that replaces it is open to rebuttal. If it were the case that on the whole the candidates of some boards were much more industrious than those of others or had given more time to the subject or been much better taught, and if these circumstances made them better at the subject without making them correspondingly better at the monitoring test, then the monitoring evidence would indicate these boards as unduly lenient and would be in error in doing so. That's the critical point. Okay? And remember, this is exactly the basis of the exam board critique from phase two. It's actually expressed in terms of inter-board comparability here because, as I said, at, at this time these guys weren't actually investigating inter-subject comparability. But uh, the same principle holds for inter-subject comparability. So I think what these guys are saying uh, is that you can only interpret evidence from reference tests and subject pair analysis and such like at face value. If students in both uh, subject areas put in the same amount of effort and if students in both subject areas are equally well taught, and if students in uh, the different subject areas put the same amount of time into their studies, and so on. And I think the implication of that is that um, if students do put in the same amount of effort, and they do put in the same amount of time, and if they are taught equally well, and if they are equally intelligent, and if they do have the same aptitude for the subject... And if all of the other causal determinants of attainment are the same, on average, for those groups of students, then they ought to be awarded the same grades. Yeah? Makes sense? Important point here, to contrast it with a phenomenal definition, is they're not actually making any assumptions at all about what attainment in those two different subject areas actually look like. So it's not a phenomenal definition. They're only looking at the causes. And they're saying that basically, if on average chemistry put students put the same into their studies as French students, then they ought to end up with the same grades. So that's the basic logic of the causal definition. So if the sum total of all of the causal determinants of attainment in one subject are the same as the sum total of all of the causal determinants of attainment in another subject, then students deserve the same grades. Make sense? You can nod more vigorously if you like. Or shake your heads. Okay, so this quotation, it, it just says exactly the same thing, but this time specifically in the context of intersubject comparability. Um, <clears throat> I won't bother reading it. I've just presented it here because it's the classic statement of the assumptions that uh, regurgitated time and time again in comparability monitoring reports over the years. 
And what I'm saying is that the assumptions that are stated here um, imply an all-causes causal definition of comparability. So if the sum total of all the causal determinants of attainment are the same across two or more subject areas, then so too should the grades be. Now, it's interesting, from the research that I did, looking at the different definitions of comparability that appeared to be used, you know, I say appeared to because the definitions were always implicit in assumptions like these, um, I concluded that almost all of the research in the 20th century, up to the end of phase three, was grounded in this all-causes causal definition. That, in my study, was um, at least 19 of the first 27 reports. At least 19, because there could have been others, but I just couldn't, there wasn't enough evidence to go on from the others to say what their definition might have been. So almost all of the research in the 20th century seemed to be based on this all-causes causal definition. Obviously, they didn't use the terminology. That's my terminology. But they did all make the same assumptions, these assumptions. So basically, this definition seemed to be the paradigm for understanding intersubject comparability in the 20th century. Funnily enough, though, um, what people tended not to spot was one really radical implication of the all-causes causal definition. And it's this one. If you spend more time learning a subject, you'll become better at it. It's fairly un uh, uncontroversial, I think. So the point is that time spent learning a subject is a, a genuine causal determinant of attainment, one that definitely ought to be factored into an all-causes causal definition. But equally obviously, students begin studying GCSEs and A-levels from radically different baselines of attainment depending on how long they studied the subject before starting it. Yeah? And Forrest and Vickerman recognised this back in 1982. And they were comparing standards between German O-level and French O-level. And they said this. They said, It should, however, also be noted that whereas the great majority of ordinary-level French candidates started learning the language in the first year of secondary schooling, it's known that many German candidates start the language at a later stage. Thus, the first factor to be taken into account... Um, mentioned amongst the reservations to be taken into account when using subject pairs data, length of course and amount of teaching time devoted to the subject, is of considerable importance in making judgments about the relative difficulty of French and German. So basically they were reasoning that students start studying German a couple of years earlier than they start studying French. I certainly did. I started French in the first year and German in the third year, and then we had O-levels in the fifth year. So by the end of their O-level German course, then, students would have spent more time studying German than they studied French. And therefore, all other things being equal, uh, they ought to be awarded lower grades in German than they're awarded in French. Well, this is the conclusion that Forrest and Vickerman very sincerely came to. And it's a very radical conclusion. <laughs> But it does actually follow from the all-causes causal definition that everyone seemed to have bought into at the time. Okay? It's, it's very radical because it means that we'd have to award substantially higher A-level grades in national curriculum subjects, like geography, than A-levels in non-national curriculum subjects, like psychology. Um, we'd have to award substantially lower GCSE grades in subjects that are learned primarily in school, like history, as compared with subjects that are also studied essentially from birth, like English. And that would be daft, wouldn't it? It would just be daft. 
And that's what leads me to conclude that the all-causes causal definition, which is a definition that became the paradigm for understanding intersubject comparability in the 20th century, which all of the awarding bodies brought into at the time in order to critique the other people's use of the data, where it just doesn't actually work in the context of uh, examinations in England. So that's my radical conclusion. Uh, the all-causes causal definition is just one of a range of possible uh, definitions you could use. Um, so instead of defining comparability in terms of all of the causes of attainment, you could just choose to focus on a specific set of causes, or you could just choose to focus on one particular important cause. And that seems to be the approach that Rob Coe from the Chem Centre in Durham is now taking. So he's saying things like, if it's accepted that all subjects in this collection measure, at least to some extent, general academic ability, then we can legitimately compare their outcomes. So rather than saying that maths is harder than English, we must say that a particular grade in maths indicates a higher level of general academic ability than with the same grade in English. So he's making slightly different kinds of claims for comparability here. But what he's basically saying is that it's entirely legitimate to define comparability in terms of one specific, very important cause of attainment, which he calls general academic ability. So basically, under this specific causes causal definition, regardless of how much effort students put into their studies, and regardless of how much time they put into their studies across these different subject areas, and regardless of how well they've been taught across these different subject areas, if students in the different subjects are basically equivalent in terms of general academic ability, then they ought to end up with the same grades. Okay, so it's a similar kind of causal argument, but instead of looking at all of the causes of attainment, they're just saying as long as the causes, one particular cause of attainment is kind of similar across those subjects, then they can be compared. You can, if you think of comparisons across the same subject, like um, English specification A versus English specification B, you can think of comparability both in terms of the phenomena of attainment and in terms of the causes of attainment. And of course, if the causes of attainment are the same, then so too will be the phenomena of attainment. Okay, so, th- so this, is, um, this is Rob Coe's approach, the most recent <coughs> approach. Um, he's basically saying things like, um, why should law students, for example, end up with lower grades than drama students just because uh, their teachers were worse, or just because law happens to be inherently more boring than drama, or just because students study drama for longer before starting their law A-levels than law students study law. Which, you know, they aren't daft questions, I think. So basically, that's the kind of rationale for his um, adoption of what I'm calling a specific causes causal definition. I'm not sure that Rob actually thinks of what he's saying in terms of a specific causes causal definition, but in this postmodern world, that doesn't matter. Okay, so uh, finally then, uh, amongst the 35 reports that I looked at, um, I found one lone report that kind of ploughed its own intellectual foe, if you like. Um, It didn't adopt a phenomenal perspective on comparability, and it didn't adopt a causal perspective, but I think it adopted something that I would call a predictive definition. Um, This is Mike Coles and Alison, Alison Matthews, and they were contributing to the same debate as Carol Fitzgibbon and Luke Vincent, um, contributing to Ron Deering's 1966 review of maths and science subjects. But their conception of intersubject comparability was very different. 
And this is how they described it. Um, so there's GCE and GMVQ, because they were looking across qualifications as well as across subjects, looking at um, different mathematics subjects, uh, math and science subjects. Um, they said the GCE and GMVQ are considered an appropriate way to pair students for a common next step or progression route, whether to work or further study. And consequently, the preparedness of students reaching those destinations was considered a valid comparator for both qualifications. So I'm, I'm sort of linking the word preparedness there to the idea of kind of predicting something in the future. And as I said, they were looking at comparability across maths and science subjects at GMVQ and A-level, uh, and looking to see whether GMVQ and A-level were equally good preparation for a course in the future. Okay, so we're not defining comparability in terms of the phenomena of attainment in GMVQ and A-level, not in terms of the causes of attainment in GMVQ and A-level, but actually in terms of whether or not um, the qualification itself prepared students sufficiently for, a different, uh, for the same common pathway. Okay, so again, it's a, a different twist on the definition of comparability. Okay, so I'm just going to summarise... Um, where we've got to so far, and then I'll go on just a little bit longer, and then I'll open up for wider discussion. Okay, so basically I've given you five definitions so far, or the ones on the slide. Um, I began by noting that definition one, which is the traditional, conventional definition of comparability, the one that works for equating, if you like, it, it just doesn't work in terms of intersubject comparability. Um, not saying anything new there, that's for sure. Everyone's recognised that for many years. Um, definition two is the part construct phenomenal definition, um, which is possibly tenable, but probably only tenable for closely allied subject areas, so it's not really a generally applicable definition. Um, I concluded that definition three, that is the all-causes causal definition, just doesn't really make sense in the context of public examining in England, where subjects are studied for different lengths of time before starting the qualification course. And I think that's quite an important conclusion because it does seem to have been the definition that's grounded many an awarding body um, critique of uh, researchers like NFER and the Chem Centre over the years. And it's the, the definition with, within which almost all of the debate's been couched, basically. So the question then becomes, um, what alternatives are available? Well, maybe there's uh, mileage in definition four, something uh, similar to Rob Coe's definition of comparability, a specific causes causal definition. Maybe there's some potential in the predictive or preparedness definitions um, that Mike Coles and Alison Matthews came up with. But if you're not happy with any of those, I'll give you two more. Um, sociological definition introduced by Mike Cresswell um, again in 1996 and it was basically in, his, in response to his concern that the inability even to approximate the traditional conventional definition, um, I'm quoting again, leaves as meaningless the notion of comparability between different subjects. So basically, he proposed an entirely different kind of definition. And this is how he phrased it. So he said, two examinations have comparable standards if candidates for one of them receive the same grade as candidates for the others, whose assessed attainments are accorded equivalent value by awarders accepted as competent to make such judgments by all interested certificate users. And essentially, his argument kind of went, um, 
if society empowers um, certain agents to be the arbiters of comparability, um, and if those arbiters judge standards to be comparable across examinations, and if society agrees to accept those pronouncements of comparability, then comparability really does exist, even for contexts as challenging as intersubject comparability where it doesn't really make much sense. So basically, if the examining boards pronounce standards across subject areas comparable, and society agrees to act as though standards are comparable across subject areas, then standards really are comparable across subject areas. It's quite an interesting and a very different kind of definition. It's just like he's saying, if a minister pronounces a couple married, then they really are married. It doesn't really make any sense to say that they're not. And what he's saying is that comparability isn't a technical matter. Okay? He's saying it's a social fact, just like marriage. And it makes no more sense to question whether two exams that have been pronounced comparable are really comparable as to challenge whether or not two people are really married. Personally, I'm not a great fan of that definition, so I'll move on. And if you want to know why, I've got a paper or two you can read. Okay, so this is my final definition, and this is the one that I like at the moment. Um, It's very straightforward indeed. I call it the competitive definition. You might call it um, cohort referencing or even norm referencing. Um, So under this definition, comparability concerns the standing that equivalently graded students have in common. Okay? And what that might mean in practice is that at a national level, we make sure that different subjects have the same pass rates. Simple as that-ish. Okay, so some people think this definition is patently unfair because essentially the grade that you get is dependent upon the grade that other people get in your cohort. And that is a necessary conclusion from it. On the other hand, it is actually quite useful to be able to have that kind of knowledge, and that kind of knowledge isn't that transparent from the current system. So basically, the the reason I call it the competitive definition is is essentially how we reward success in sport. Gold for first, silver for second, bronze for third. Like The silver medalist um, satisfies the silver medal standard by coming second. End of. Even if they ran slower than the personal best of the person who came third, or personal best of any of the other finalists come to that. As I say, it's not the definition that we currently employ, because obviously we don't see nice flat graphs like that. But my question then is, what definition do we employ? Well, to bring it back to pass rates, um, can we actually explain why students get higher grades in French than chemistry, political studies than law, classics than English? And re- this, is a bit, this is my challenge to you, really. Um, why do we reward higher grades in Irish than Welsh, in communication studies than biology? Why do we award higher grades in religious studies than physics? And if you've got an answer, come back to me. So my question is, can we provide a rational explanation, any rational explanation, for the differences? Or, or coming back to the title, is the idea of intersubject comparability so incomprehensible, inexpressible, inconceivable, that we could never hope to provide a rational explanation? That's my question. I'd like to think that we ought to be able to provide a rational explanation for the differences in pass rates, but I'm not sure that we can right now. Um, So what do you think? And I'll leave it there.
Paul, thank you very much indeed. An excellent presentation and a genuine contribution. Thank you very much indeed. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.